Maybe don't know. Maybe don't. This time, 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 What's up, everybody? I am your host, Chris Hampton. Welcome to episode 174 of the Power Company podcast, brought to you by PowerCompanyClimbing.com. It's been a minute. I have been recording a lot. I've been stuffing the coffers full of podcast episodes, and I've had some really beautiful and challenging conversations over the last month or so. Um, I'm really looking forward to getting those out to you. We're going to continue talking about climbing, of course. Um, You know, it's this thing we all love. It's this thing we all breathe. We're going to keep talking about that. We're also going to keep talking about race, about sexism, about homophobia, about all of the things that affect this community and all the others, frankly. Um, climbing isn't special. And I think that's I think that's been shown in some really unfortunate ways recently. Um, climbing isn't special. There are just as many racists, sexists, homophobic people in climbing as there are in the general community. So we're going to keep getting stronger. We're going to keep getting better. And that means in climbing and in the rest of our lives as well. While most of my conversations recently that I've been recording have revolved around uh, racism in the climbing community, I have had some great conversations just based on climbing as well. Um, I sat down with one of my heroes, Paul Piana, and talked partnership and big dreams with him for quite a while, actually. So that and more coming soon. Just a couple of quick notes before we get started. We recently got a shipment of our footholds in stock. Most of those are gone already, but we do have a few sets of the Inductor 20s left over. Those are our favorite feet on our 45-degree wall. They're very, very hard to use on a 45, but extremely realistic to outdoors. They force you into positions that most footholds today just don't because, frankly, footholds are hard and time-consuming for companies to make. So the bigger and blobbier the foot, the easier it is to make, the more money they make. That leaves us with big blobby feet. Check those out if you've got a home wall and you're looking to step your game up. We also just released, and I'm really excited about this, two new proven plans. And these are the Just Climb More Boulders, Just Climb More Routes. We call them Just Climb More because that's the advice that a lot of beginners and new climbers get when they start asking about training. And frankly, it's it's cop-out advice. It's lazy advice. Of course we should be climbing more, but we shouldn't just climb more. We should be climbing with intention, with attention to certain things, to specific tactics, and to the way that we move and the way that we feel when we're moving. So 
that these two programs complete our line of proven plans. It was always viewed as this complete journey from beginner climber to advanced climber. So now you can go all the way from just climb more routes to climb 514 or just climb more boulders to boulder strong within within our proven plan system. So check those out at powercompanyclimbing.com slash proven dash plans. You can check the footholds out at powercompanyclimbing.com slash holds. You'll find links to both of those in the show notes in your pocket supercomputer. I also want to take a quick second to give a shout out to my friend Joe with Women Uprising in Australia. They have coming up very soon on the 5th of September, they have a virtual climbing festival that is the the first women of color, queer folks and queer folks of color and adaptive climber led festival in Australia. Um, you know, we've, we've been doing similar things to this in the U.S. for quite a while. This is the first one to happen in Australia. And it, it supports the climbing community, especially in a time of lockdown. There's, there's still some lockdown going on in Victoria. This provides a mental support that a lot of the climbing community needs to connect to that climbing community that we all find so valuable. And it also supports the athletes and speakers uh, and the panel speakers in the event. 60% of the speakers aren't working right now due to restrictions. So, so this festival is a form of income for them. We're supporting the climbing community. And we're supporting the people in the climbing community who may not see as much support as others. So you can find them at wuclimbfestival.com, or you can also follow the link right there in your show notes. All right. Today's episode is one I recorded a month or so ago um, with Mr. Clipping Chains himself, Chad Andrews. If you're not familiar with Clipping Chains, it's a website that talks to climbers mainly about financial independence. Um, Chad has a really interesting story, and he gives advice in a similar way to how I approach, how we approach climbing and improving at climbing. So his approach really resonates with me, and finances is something that we, we for some reason, it's taboo to talk about, but it's something that's always a part of our lives, and it's always a part of my life as a business owner, as you know, somebody who's recently moved to a new place and has completely switched their life and their lifestyle around. It's something that's in the forefront of my mind pretty often. And while I do a, a decent job at it, it's, it's an always improving thing. And this conversation with Chad was really enlightening for me. And I think it's a good one for us to get back on track here at the podcast life in general let's get into it the best time to invest was sometime in the past the second best time is now because we never know and i don't care who tells you they say they know where the market's heading they're full of shit and you should run Small, throw it in the bag. Yep. Cool. 
So let's, can I just start with like a kind of a big question? Yeah. When, when we were starting Power Company, it was a little bit taboo to talk about training. Yeah. Like people were like, I don't need to train or I don't want to train. It's going to ruin my climbing. Climbing's you know, I, a lifestyle sport. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not athletes. So why is money so damn taboo to talk about? Man, it's a million dollar question I don't know how to answer. Um, and I used to feel the same way. I think when I, so I discovered climbing and my like first real job, career job, like real money making job um, within two weeks. It was the exact same time, mm. 2010. And I was in Houston and it's a very, very corporate kind of town. Lots of people making money, and it's very big right. in the in energy industry, which was what I was in, oil and gas. And I discovered climbing, and that was more my kind of people. Um, you know, I think climbers, this is me generalizing, but tend to be a more liberal bunch, kind of free-spirited bunch, obviously very generalizing. I know there's people that don't fit that mold, especially in Wyoming. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I was a little apprehensive about talking about what I did and how much money I made because I just thought people wouldn't identify with it and would think that I was, I don't know, something different. Um, mm -hmm. I think in that today, I, I think it's changing, but today I think in climbing to this day, it's still kind of, I think people still kind of keep a cloak around how much money they make, whether it's high or low. And I think there's almost more glorification in saying you don't make much. Um, right. And that, you know, live simply and there's bumper stickers that say it. And I'm all for about living simply. Why is money taboo? I don't know. I think it's just because it's one of those things that can potentially separate those from who have and have not. And um, we try and put ourselves in evil, equal footing sure. with those around us as best we can. But, um, man, I, you know, I don't know how to answer that. I think what people try and do with money and how they portray it. I think there's a lot of confusion on what looks like wealth and what actually is wealth. Yeah. I think when people see a really nice house and nice things and nice cars and jewelry, we equate that with success. Mm -hmm. And those people could be horribly in debt up to their ears. Right. Hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt. And I remember when that first came across my radar as a kid, I'm like, really? Like they have all that stuff and they're like hurting financially? Right. Because you just think that you have to, mm -hmm. whereas... There's a book called The Millionaire Next Door, and it talks about all these um, uh, instances of people who actually are millionaires, who actually have that net worth, who actually have like real solid wealth and savings, and they don't look like those people. That's It's a perfect name for the book because they're usually people that you would just think are just kind of average. Right. Um, they drive normal cars. They drive like a Honda Civic. Um, they don't do flashy things. They don't have caviar parties. And um, kind of once I started to identify with that, I got very interested on in what wealth really is. And I, because I was one of those people who, if I heard, I worked in restaurants forever and, you know, making money in restaurants. And I just thought everyone else making money was some sort of sellout. So I don't know. I'm getting off on a tangent. I, I don't know why money's taboo. I just think. It's um, so interesting to me that it is, especially mm -hmm. in this climbing space, because we've got this, this like revered history of climbers become successful business owners, you know, mm -hmm. the Yvonne Chouinard yep. and Doug Tompkins and yep. uh, Royal Robbins and, and, and 
you know, I go to these climbing industry events like CWA and I love having conversations with, with these people that I've watched come up and reinvent themselves multiple times and create successful businesses within this climbing space. But then there is this taboo around how much money are we making? Right. You know, and, and even in the, you know, not in the industry side of it, but if we look at just climbers now, we all want to have these, you know, $70,000 vehicles that we're going to live in and (laughs) $70,000 is money, you know, and you have to get that money somewhere. So it's just so odd to me. And I was curious if you'd seen any patterns in why. And I I think you might be right that it's a a separator. You know, it's almost a divisive thing to talk about. And I do see it changing. I mean, you were alluding to $70,000 vehicles. I think we're talking about big vans. And I I talked about this on another podcast. I think that is starting to be a little bit of a, maybe a, instead of a Rolex, like now it's a very nice van. And I don't have any problem with that. You can make good economic sense with that. But I, I do think we're seeing a little bit in the last maybe five, maybe 10 years of, of uh, you know, kind of money and flashiness entering climbing, whereas 10 plus years and, and back, it was like, you know, dirtbag actually meant dirtbag. Like mm-hmm. you slept in the dirt. You yeah. maybe had a beater car, but, you know, the Camp 4, and that was still very much glorified. But now I think we're seeing a change, and, I, and I'm all for it. I kind of fit that demographic of people who have maybe the white-collar jobs, maybe have some location flexibility, and they're like, well, hell, you know, maybe I don't need a house, but I'll put a hell of a lot of money into a van, but that's going to be my house, and that maybe makes great economic sense. Mm-hmm. So, I, I mean, I do think we're seeing a change, and I think that's why, um, you know, this website I started, it felt like the right time to start talking about it. Like maybe 10 years ago, I would have been shunned. Like, well, how dare you, you know, right. bring bring money into climbing. This is a pure sport and uh, we shouldn't be talking about, you know, investing and building wealth. That's just dirty talk. And I, there's still going to be a contingent of that. Honestly. Absolutely. Yeah. There's yeah. always going to be. Um, yeah. I still battle with people who say there's no reason to train. Exactly. It's, a, it's I, I, I always make parallels to training because I think there's so many uh, similarities. It's just optimization and, and it's accepting of a mindset that, um, you know, if you can get, if you, you know, a lot of people out there can tell you all the nuances between max hangs and repeaters and why it should be seven seconds instead of five seconds. Um, I say, man, if you put half that effort into trying to figure out some simple financial things, you could be, um, you could have way more tangible results for one. I mean, cause we know that, um, Hangboarding and climbing is very wishy-washy. Right. You know, we can, <laughs> right. I mean, you're a coach. You've probably seen many people who um, you can give them the best plan in the world, but it's not always cut and dry on whether they're going to improve. And some people will improve uh, like gangbusters and some will go nowhere and complain. Um, right. Whereas, you know, I think there's some pretty simple systems in money that if you do them and if you stick to that plan, I mean, you almost surely will see results, uh, which is a little bit different from climbing. But I, I do agree that there's there's still this just like with training, there's still going to be a contingent of folks who will say, never, not over my dead body, I will not train because this is a lifestyle sport. And, and also, never, not over my dead body, will I entertain the idea of having money because that will pollute you or make you evil or something like right. that. Yeah. Right. And I was going to get to this in a few minutes, but let's just go down that sure. path while we're here. 
with something like hangboarding, and and you're exactly right that there are people who go really in depth with like, should it be five seconds? Should it be seven seconds? How long should I rest? What's the correct protocol? And in my view, having watched thousands of climbers, those are the things that we spend so much of our time on, so much of our energy on, so much of our thought goes into and they give the tiniest results, you know, very often. Mm-hmm. Yes, there are going to be people who hangboard for a cycle and see major results. Mm-hmm. But then after a cycle or two of that, the results are much smaller. That was me. Yeah. And we have, yeah, same here. And we have, we have much bigger things we can pay attention to, but we end up not paying attention to them. And we miss out on those bigger gains. Yep. Where are the areas you see financially people putting a lot of focus that maybe don't provide the best results? Whether that means they're putting their money into it or they're saving or being frugal by doing these things, but it really doesn't make that big a difference. Um, in general, I'd say I, don't, I just don't think people put much effort into it at all. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people... You know, they check their online checking account, and if it is in the green, we're good, you know? Right. Uh, and that was me. You know, as long as there's something there, and you know the next paycheck's coming, and you can buy groceries this week, then you're good. Um, I think for people who are kind of the next level up, optimized, maybe they're... I get this a lot, actually, from climbers. Um, this is the feedback I get a lot, is that I'm good at being frugal. And this was always my hypothesis, and it's been borne out by people who reach out to me. They're like, I'm good at being frugal. I save up to 50% of my income, which, by the way, in most of society is huge. Like, most people really struggle with spending. Yeah. Um, I think climbers, for all the reasons we've already talked about, that live simply ethos, are actually pretty good at saving. And and now climbers more and more so have better jobs. Uh, maybe they're nurses, doctors, lawyers. I mean, they're making money. And, but they don't see the reason to be spending tons of it. So they're actually good at making money and saving it, but they kind of stop there. And, um, I, you know, I talk about this a lot and this is where people get a little puckered is when you talk about the investing side of things. If you just leave your money in checking or savings, you're kind of falling behind to inflation. So every year you're, the stuff you buy costs about two to 3% more on average. Mm-hmm. Um, Whereas, you know, your checking or savings account makes virtually nothing. So you're always falling 2 to 3% behind. And a lot of people will be like, well, you know, how am I ever going to not need to make a paycheck? Like when I get to in my 60s, like who's going to pay me? And so that's where you got to find some vehicle that's kind of outpacing, outpacing that inflationary um, effect. And so that's why we kind of talk about getting into these simple kind of investing strategies. And so that's where I see a lot of people kind of stopping is maybe they're good at saving and they're good at having a target and say, okay, I want to go on this trip or I want to buy a van or I want to go, yeah, whatever. Usually it's a trip, something like that. They're good at saying, I want to build enough money for this. And that's where they kind of stop. And if you put in these automated systems, like a lot of times I tell people for investing accounts, I mean, this is a whole nother can of worms we can get into if we want, but a lot of times you can just take, you're already paying yourself, right? You're not spending more than, I don't know, whatever percent of your income. You've got this check and you're spending some portion of that, but not all of it. What we did um, starting five, seven years ago was just allocate that money to go to an investment account. And we did not have to do anything. It was not manual. We set it up. A lot of these companies, these brokerage accounts have automatic contributions. 
and you tell it where you want it to go, how often, and what you want to buy with it, and it just happens. And um, I love simple things, and that's one of those simple things that a lot of people don't take advantage of because they don't know, and I didn't know either. I think there's also this perception that like investing, again, is kind of has, has this essence of bad, evil, right. kind of wrong. A little like, slimy. Be, yeah, because you think of like the Wolf of Wall mm-hmm. Street and people like, you know, the old 80s style of like investing is like to, you know, make shorts and, and bet on failure and things like that. Or, uh, you know, like the big short, have you ever watched that? Mm-hmm. You know, always looking for ways to uh, get rich quick kind of schemes. Yep. And what I view this is, and I tell everyone, is like this is a long play and it's, a, it's to build a lifestyle. You know, I'm not thinking about three months. I'm not thinking about five years. I'm thinking like 40 years. I'm thinking 60 years. And so you just be, build these little systems. And I kind of think of training again to make, keep making that parallel. It's like you're not hangboarding for today. You're not hangboarding for your project even in a month. You're kind of hangboarding and training for two years out, three years out, five right. years out. And I it's think hard people to do, wrap your head around that. I think people do make that mistake of yeah. I want to train. And, I, you know, I see this all the time. I hear it all the time. People saying, I need to get some power endurance before Saturday, Exactly. you know, and I'm like, it, it doesn't really work that way, you know? Yeah. And I I just get that all the time. The, I need to do this thing right now to Mm -hmm. set myself up for now, basically. And training is for the future. Essentially, it's this long-term thing. And so, you know, basically what you're getting at is that when it comes to money, people think about the immediate yep. more than they think about the big future right. picture. Yeah. They're either saving for that trip in three months or maybe a year, or even people I work with, you know, in, in the oil and gas industry that had expendable income and wanted to invest, they were still thinking of like, oh, you know, like this stock's super hot. Like I'm going to make a killing on this and then I'm going to get out in three months. Like, and that's a very dangerous behavior and it's a great way to lose a lot of money. Yeah. And that's why these sort of things I think get a bad reputation because somebody's uncle went and bet on some crappy company like mm-hmm. Enron or something and lost all their money. <laughs> yeah. And now these sort of things have a bad name and have a kind of ugh, just kind of dirty, slimy, like you said, kind of, mm, uh, you know, aura around them. Right. But I, what I appreciate about, you know, what we're calling, I guess, this financial independence movement is that there's a group of people who, who saw the possibility and just taking it easy, taking a long-term approach and just doing things that are not sexy at all. And, and this is why I keep going back to training because I feel like training is very much the same way. No matter what your sport it is, very unsexy day in and day out. It's yeah. usually quite frustrating. Yeah. And there's no there's no 1% growth session over session. You don't see it. You don't feel it. But you go back and you look in your journal a year, two years ago, and you're like, yeah, I'm a better climber for sure. Uh, I'm a stronger climber. You know, all these, if you're doing it right, right? And I feel like money is the same way. It, it's It's... It's little things that you don't see on a daily basis, but it's not its not about chasing the big next thing. Uh, it's, it's not trying to ride any sort of wave. Um, th- that happens. Yeah. But you can ride it down too. Um, and I'll try and stop touching the table. But <laughs> 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 so uh, I don't even remember what your question is. I feel like I'm going off on a tangent. But Well, you yeah. know, we were, we were talking about you know, areas we put a lot of effort that maybe don't have a big return. And I was thinking about this yesterday because I'm a, I'm a DIY person. I love to do things myself because I love to learn things. Mm -hmm. You know, it's less of a, I need to save money thing and more of a, I just want to learn how to do this thing. Yep. And I also feel like if I learn to do it, I'm better 
prepared to hire someone to do it in the future. Exactly. I feel exactly the same way. Yep. And, you know, yesterday I cut this tree down. There was a tree here that I'm like, oh, I want to get rid of this tree, yep. you know, and we've been planning to, and I went back and forth, like, I don't know how to cut down a tree. Should we just pay somebody? <laughs> it's very close to the house. It's leaning toward the house. I don't even see where it was. So you did a great job. I don't even see the yeah, stump. Yeah, exactly. It, it's right there, hidden under that yeah. sawdust. But for the record, he did a good job, <laughs> and I didn't damage the house, which yeah. <laughs> is a huge plus. Um, and it was it was just a fun experience for me. But next time, I'm going to pay somebody to cut down a tree. Right. And I think that we get caught up in this DIY thing as a money saving tool and it's not always mm-hmm. sometimes it can be but oftentimes you end up spending 14 trips to the hardware store to buy all these new tools you're spending hours and hours and hours of your time and then you end up with this thing that would have cost you much less to just have it built yeah i i completely agree um and just on the being frugal side of things i used to I, you know, I talk about this in like 2016 when we really got into saving and investing and we wanted to maximize our savings to the nth degree. Um, we went too far and I refused to pay anyone for anything. And I was yeah. all about DIY, which is great because you do get some skills. And then, yes, totally. when you when you hire someone, you start to understand like what they do and whether they do a good job with it and whether what they're charging is reasonable. But um, you also can miss the forest for the trees and make your life miserable when you know, is a few hundred bucks going to make or break it? Probably not for most people. And like when we just left Denver, we hired a moving company and I didn't want to do it. Cause I'm like, man, it's like six, 700 bucks. It's like, we can just strong arm this stuff. But it was me and my wife. And I'm like, man, money well spent. So you have to find, yeah. Yeah. you know, we've talked about this and I, I write about this a lot. Um, where people spend money is usually three big areas and it's housing, it's transportation and it's food. And if you're obsessing over, you know, a little $300 one-off expense, it's probably misplaced priorities. Right. Um, you know, and so th- so those sort of things that I see is very common uh, for people who do get really frugal. They'll, they'll kind of go overboard on little stuff and be missing the fact that they're paying way too much for rent or something like that. You know, right. these really big things that are recurring expenses every single month that we kind of just take for granted because it's like, well, I got to live somewhere. Um, yeah, there's so, the common, like fancy coffee you know conversation about save this money you know save your three dollars make coffee at home right and yes that does add up sure but but there are bigger places we could be paying right more attention yeah you have to be mindful of the death by a thousand cuts because that can happen you know but it's usually some big big ticket items just like in climbing like you know don't worry about seven versus five seconds you know are are you focusing on skills do you have like the foundations covered Mm -hmm. before you're worried about you know you know seven versus five seconds on a half pad edge you know these little things that we kind of get obsessed over and i think it's just human nature because especially in a sport like climbing where there's very few tangible things that we can latch on to yeah i think we get really wrapped up in those and um but man, I always tell people, if, if you get that into training and climbing, you'll find money to be a breeze. Like a lot of this is just a little bit of research, maybe for a few hours, and um, you can get some systems in place, and then it's autopilot from there. It's it's easier. Yeah, so I'm not going to go too deep into like your your background or any of that. If anybody wants to know that, I think it's you know the, the Nugget podcast that you were on did a really great... Mm-hmm. 
uh, job of working through a lot of these things, and you should definitely go listen to that um, if you want to know more. But one thing I do want to know is you don't like to use the word retired. You use the phrase financially independent. Yeah. And what's the difference there, and what does financially independent mean to you? Well, okay. So truly there isn't – so I guess just to give a little bit of background just for those who haven't heard of me at all. You know, we pursued this thing where we would build enough net worth, basically savings, to, uh, in theory, never work again. And we hit that target early this year, right before the world kind of went to shit. But (laughs) we're Mm -hmm. we're still there. We're still in that kind of realm of what we'd call financially independent. And that from that point on, work does become optional. At least paid traditional W-2, kind of working for the man kind of stuff becomes optional. Um, I don't like to use the word retired because... Well, for a few reasons. One, I don't like the in, the image it conjures up. I think it, the image that comes to mind when you hear someone say they're retired is that they're sitting on the beach with a da, you know daiquiri and uh, or just you know like <laughs> watching YouTube videos because you're bored and just kind of sitting on the lazy boy. Right. I don't like that image. A lot of people like to use it in the community. They they strongly endorse the image because they they want to show that they're young and they accomplish something. <clears throat> um, mm-hmm. And I understand that. I mean, they kind of want to wear it as a badge. But I also I also think work is deeply meaningful. Um, that's why I set this project up. I knew we were on the uh, I don't know the final kind of uh, kind of landing strip here of where we were headed financially. Um, about two years ago, I started this because I wanted something to kind of like slide into if I was going to leave my job. And I didn't want to just climb and I didn't want to just travel. Um, I've seen how that can get unsustainable at a point. And how did you know that was going to be unsustainable? You told me earlier that you've never really taken more than a week or two long trip. Mm-hmm. How did you know at that point that going climbing all year I just wasn't know what you wanted? Well, for a couple reasons. One, I knew from other, there were people who came before us, right? This is a movement. There's actually quite a number of people who have achieved what we've achieved. It's, we're not that unusual anymore. Um, five years ago, it was still kind of an unusual thing. And now it's really grown. So there were people that came before us who were like, yeah, we traveled the world for like a year or so. And then you got kind of bored with it. So there was a little bit of that, you know, seeing those who had come before us. But I also mm-hmm. knew just me, like <clears throat> I very much rely on a schedule I very much rely on structure. Um, I remember even in college having the summers off and just being like kind of blase about the world. Mm-hmm. And I just knew, well, and you know, I've listened to a lot of podcasts, listened to yours. I, I hear people who don't have any other obligations other than to climb talk about how it can be, um, you know, a point of diminishing returns on that. So I just knew I really like to have a focused effort on something. Um, I like having accountability. That's why I insist on publishing new articles almost. I've yet to miss a week yet, as far as I know, I think. Nice. Yeah. I, I like having that self-imposed deadline, which some people find anal, and I can be anal. Um, but I just knew that just waking up and just kind of waiting around for the shade to hit the cliff every day and just lounging in a hammock was not going to do it for me. Mm-hmm. And so I think... <clears throat> and I also think I'm going to make money again one day. Like, sure. I don't... I want to do something that's... And there are things about business I like other than just the money-making aspect of it. I think like building something, like I've always admired what you've done. And that's why I reached out to interview you is because I admire these people who go and make a business out of something that doesn't seem like it will work. And in right. your days, 
like you said, training was There's not, still days where it doesn't seem like it exactly, work. <laughs> training does not seem like something that would pay the bills. Yeah. That you'd be able to buy a house and, you know, have a lifestyle. And I really admire, but I could not take the financial risk of doing something like that. I just, mm-hmm. for me, I just, like, I, I, I need more stability. I just couldn't walk away as many times as I wanted to walk away from my corporate life in the 10 years I did it. Um, my wife and I resolved to do this, but we knew that we were going to have fun for a while, which is why we're on a road trip now. And I intentionally kind of wanted to experience this because I hadn't, but I knew that one day I was going to want to buckle down. And, and so the platform I run now, I, I do it 100% free. I run some ads just to cover costs, but, um, I, I don't want that to be a business, but I do, you know, whether it's writing one day or something else that I haven't really sorted out, I do want to work and I want to have something that maybe doesn't take eight to 10 hours, like doesn't feel like a slog, like a traditional job does and doesn't ideally doesn't require a commute um, Mm -hmm. or bosses. I like being my own boss. Yep. But that was the whole point. Like build this point of financial stability where you can make, call your own shots. And you also don't need to be successful in the traditional sense. You don't need to make 40, 50, 80, hundred thousand dollars. Like if we made five grand a year, I would consider that a success. Now, anyone else would call that a very much a failing business. Right. But it's that much less I have to rely off my investments. Um, it's what's called sequence of return risk. Like if you can have little income streams coming in, you don't have to sell shares to live off of it. We're kind of getting in the weeds. But basically, if I made $5,000 doing something like maybe writing for a magazine or writing a book, like that would be kick-ass. Like I would be like thrilled. I'm like, wow, I'm a successful business person. But Mm -hmm. by any other standards, that wouldn't cut it, you know? And you'd have to go get another job or really push on the marketing or something to build it. Um, So that was my goal. And so that's why I I retired. That word doesn't do it for me. And I also kind of think like, if you told somebody that, like if I told my neighbor on the street, like, oh yeah, well, I recently retired, they'd be like, what? Mm -hmm. You know, they would just automatically assume that maybe... I don't know, dad died and I got some huge inheritance. Right. Absolutely. Or um, some sort of trust fund kid. I don't know, man. I just like, it's still hard to talk about. And that's why I started this website because it's money's taboo. And I started it as a way to kind of talk about things I didn't feel comfortable talking about in person. Yeah. And I'm glad that people seem interested now. But at the time, um, there's no way, even to this day, that someone I don't know well, I would walk up to and be like, well, you know, I quit my job because I don't have enough money to live off of forever. Yeah. And uh, well, there's definitely a taboo in America anyway around not working 60 hours a week. Mm-hmm. You know? That's another thing. When I, was, when I was painting murals and I would be talking to some of my coworkers and other contractors would listen in on my future plans mm-hmm. or if I was on a construction site working on a mural and I told the the head contractor I'm not going to be here on Tuesdays because I go rock climbing on Tuesdays right. he's like what in the hell are you talking about you can't go you can't leave in the middle of the week 100%. and I'm like well, watch me that was that was my experience in corporate America 100% like I worked for especially the last company I worked for was very much work hard play hard small company yeah. kind of driving ethic mm-hmm. we were given lots of vacation that they didn't expect you to take um, as a perk that meant nothing. It was empty because all my coworkers did not take vacation. It was like everyone's kind of looking around the room comparing themselves, you know, like, okay, Johnny's not taking vacation. Sally's not taking vacation. I'm yeah. not either. And I used every bit of it every year that I worked there. Yep. And <clears throat> I'd be like, well, I'm going to take two weeks. We're going to Europe. And they're like, 
really? Like, didn't you just go like eight months ago? I'm like, yeah, well, there was a good flight deal. So yeah. I'm going again. <laughs> like I got the vacation. I'm not breaking any rules. And yeah, I'd head out at four on the dot because I wanted to get to the gym before it got busy. Whereas other people were there till six, seven, eight. And, um, but I also found that once you didn't care, um, and I've talked a lot about this and I, I find it, and this is the one thing I always try and get to people that they don't understand. It's like, once you do have a little bit of financial strength, like you can start calling your own shots and people start actually appreciating it for you for it. And I did have some people who were like, man, it's really cool that you like are going on these trips and like living your life. Like, yeah. like I think they start to see like, maybe I don't have to be such a workaholic and mm-hmm. maybe I don't have to kiss so much ass. And um, you, you start to kind of have this... Um, kind of arms crossed kind of feeling like eh, well what do I got to lose like if they don't like it they can show me the door but I've got a decent amount of savings and I'm not worried about it um, right I, but you're 100% right especially in America I think there's this and, and it's worked well for us you know hard work has got us a long way in this country to some degree but there is absolutely a point of diminishing returns on it and it's usually our health and happiness mm-hmm. and, and it can be your children that you don't see um, you know, when you're at work 12, 14 hours a day, you know, somebody's suffering and it's usually you and somebody else. Um, yeah. You made a, you made a comment, uh, a few minutes ago about you didn't want to take the, or you didn't feel comfortable taking the financial risk at that time mm-hmm. to, you know, for, for whatever it is, this, you know, I'm, I'm creating a business that doesn't seem like it can work, you know, and that's definitely a financial risk. Mm-hmm. And you were in a position where you didn't feel comfortable taking right. a financial risk like that at the time. Um, and that just made me think down this road of why did I feel comfortable? I was certainly not in a financial position where, oh, I'm good. You know, yeah. I can take this risk. And I think what it comes down to is that I had just had a lot of practice at being in those risky situations, mm-hmm. you know, like I've had Hazel Finley on the podcast. You've yep. interviewed yep. Hazel on the Clipping Chains blog. And, you know, she talks a lot about practicing risk and practicing in fear. And, you know, I, I grew up in this situation where at 16, I moved out, lived on the streets, and then pretty much every year from 16 until recently um the last three years there's been a point every single year where it's like okay the bank account's almost empty (laughs) i need to figure this thing out you know and i need to cobble some things together i need to get back in the green you know and and i've just gotten good at cobbling those things together and that's what this business was supposed to be it was supposed to be a okay, I'm going to go full-time into cobbling together, right. you know? And doing something you love. Not that mural painting wasn't something you loved as well. Right, and that but. was going to be part of the cobbling together. Like, I can, I know I'm moving to Lander. Yep. I'm not going to be able to paint murals in Lander, but I can drive <laughs> to Jackson. Yeah. And, you know, I had a good enough reputation in that world that I could certainly go to Jackson and work with interior decorators in, yep. you know, expensive houses. And right. I could sell paintings in galleries and... You know, so I had this whole cobble together idea, but it's something I had practiced for years. You know, it's a really good point. I never actually considered until you just mentioned that because I did not have any practice in that. Um, You know, I came from a pretty comfortable middle class existence. Um, Not so unlike many climbers. I think, you know, we talk Mm -hmm. about privilege a lot. I think climbing is 
one of the more privileged sports there is. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of us in come, a lot of ways. A lot of ways. Not just us, financial privilege, nope. but yeah, many racial many, privilege yep, and exactly. Yeah, and so I think a lot of us come from pretty cushy backgrounds. And um, you know, I went to college and I went and I knew I had to get a good job, and I did that very traditional path. So there was nothing in my upbringing. Um, that e- that either enabled or even required me to get uncomfortable and take big risks, and so I didn't, and so I just did the traditional path. You know, I went to college, I went to college again, got a master's, and then I went and got the the big corporate job, which I, you know, which to this day is still considered a damn good path. Like that's supposed yep. to be successful for sure. Um, unfortunately, and I've talked to more people than I care to admit this. A lot of people get those jobs and are not super happy with the results. I mean, yeah, I think a lot of workplace culture, all the things we've talked about, overworking, kind of burnout, um, those sort of things. You know, there's probably a little bit of generational kind of like, there's probably a little bit, maybe the jobs haven't changed that much, but people's perception of that kind of world has changed. Um, but, you know, it's really interesting that, yeah, someone with your background, like, what do you got to lose? You know, like, right. you, you've seen worse, so I knew why I not could, just try? I knew I could figure it out. Yeah. So... Why not just jump in and try? And then I just followed the the successful elements. Yeah. You know, rather than rather than stick to this plan I had built to cobble things together, I just followed the successful element mm-hmm. and kept building on it. Kept finding what parts of it do I enjoy and build on that. And is it you just said something that made made this question pop into my head. Is it okay to use a job, a career as a means to an end and have it not be the thing that makes you happy? Yeah. So, I mean, that was the, the approach I took. I mean, I knew very early on that I didn't want to do this forever. It didn't, it took me two weeks or so mm-hmm. to realize that it was very quick. I'm like <clears throat> office culture. Ugh. Like, I mean, a, for one, I was in Houston. I was not in the city I wanted to be in. Nate, um, you hear that? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, but <buddy>. uh, <laughs> we've talked, he knows. Um, so, yeah, I knew I wanted to, so, yeah, I was like, this cannot be forever. I thought this would be something that would do three years and I'd go back and get a PhD and like be a professor. That's what I really wanted to do. Um, but then I kind of, once we kind of discovered this whole financial thing, we were like, you know, we could use this as a building block for something else. And we decided to go the full Monty. And, and you know, and on the nugget, I talked with Steven about this. It, it's a sliding scale. And I've got a guy I'm interviewing right now, otherwise a pretty normal dude, but he actually wants to use these same methods as just like, okay, I'm going to work in this kind of, you know, I, I did the traditional thing. I got the engineering degree and I'm going to go into a corporate job. And by the way, this doesn't have to be like high salary engineers kind of stuff. Sure, you could be a teacher sure. and do the yep. same methods. Um, and anyway, so he uses this. He wants to build up towards taking a trip in a couple of years. And knowing he has a very solid financial background, he can then say, well, okay, well, maybe we pursue that more meaningful work that doesn't exactly allow us to save a ton but pays the bills and we've got these other background investments that are kind of building and 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 we're good like maybe i won't go back to corporate america maybe i'm only going to do this for three to five years and so that's what i tell people it's like i i think there is a tendency to want to like especially now um to go and chase a passion Mm -hmm. which can work but i think you can attest to it that it is not something that doesn't come without a hell of a lot of effort and yeah, really building something and it can be just slow grind and mm-hmm. you have to be a craftsman and you have to hone the craft. And I, I think you can chase a passion, but it's going to be a lot more work than you think. And it may not pay for a long time right. and you have to be able to, to do that. And a lot of people don't make it past that point cause they don't have the financial, <clears throat> you know, uh, 
security to kind of like, you know, risk not making money for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And so they have to kind of just start, I don't know, going back to an old job or, or you know, trying to make couple things together otherwise. Yeah. But, and I've heard you talk about this and uh, I, I built this whole business kind of based around a, an independent hip hop label model. And, and one of my favorite hip hop podcasts also talks about this quite a bit where one of the best ways to to move into doing something that's your passion, quote unquote, is to just make it your like side hustle for a while and keep your regular job, work on this side hustle for a while. And if you're, if you're still passionate about it three or four years down the road of it being a side hustle, then, then maybe it can work, but it's really easy for us to get like attracted to the bright and shiny lights of being an entrepreneur and greener grass. And in, yeah. in America, there's this, you know, it's, it's either or. It's like either you're corporate, you work 60 hours, you, you love this thing, or you quit your job and you follow your passion. Right, you know? exactly. I, I hate and it, that. And it can be both. Those black and white. I've talked about that a lot. I think people either think you have to be a corporate drone in a, in a, in a cubicle for 40 years or you're pursuing your passion, which probably doesn't pay, but at least you're happy. And I, I think both of them can go horribly. And both of them can go really well, but there's often a sweet spot that doesn't require such extreme. Um, and yeah, I, I kind of agree. Like this was kind of my approach with this website. I started it while I was still working a job and I would just kind of moonlight it. And again, this is not something I was trying to build as a business, but it gave me meaning on the outside and it gave me time to kind of stumble through it. So if I did want to monetize it by the time I'm not working that corporate job, I've had two years of skill development, Yeah, two years of kind of... Um, yeah, honing the craft again, you know, like learning the background of web design, learning to be a better writer, learning mm-hmm. how to market, you know, on social media, all the stuff I hate to do, but, you know, and learning a skill. And learning the super valuable skill of yeah. putting out content every week. Yep, exactly. You know? And having that accountability. Like if I just quit and then all of a sudden it's like, okay, it's Monday, I need to, here we go. <laughs> you know, yep. like you would have been over in over your head and you'd be trying to drink from a fire hose. And so that's what, that's honestly the advice I give to a lot of people who are trying to consider certain things. I'm like, well, and also you may not like it. You may think it's a passionate pursuit. Exactly. And if you don't uh, kind of moonlight <clears throat> it on the side, you may all of a sudden be like, damn, this was not actually what I thought it was. This is harder than I expected or the work isn't as meaningful. Or, um, you know, yeah, I yeah. agree completely. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really important distinction to make just because we're so indoctrinated into these, yeah. these two like contrasting ideas. You know, um, you also said something about you, you reach this level of what you consider financial independence mm-hmm. and then the world went to shit, you know, the <laughs> coronavirus hit, everything shut down on the surface. It seems like, okay, you've reached financial independence. So what does it matter if the world went to shit? So I'm assuming that there's money in the market yeah. there and that's why that's concerning to Most you. Most of the money in the market. Yeah. Right. So can we talk a little bit about putting money in the yeah. market? Because I, I think that can be a really scary thing, especially if you're paying, you know, if you're hyper attentive to the details of that and looking at it on paper, yep. it can be really scary to watch your money fluctuate, especially in these times. And you know, I've had money in the market since before the crash in, I don't know, what year was that? Oh, eight. Oh, eight. Yeah. yeah. And... I had money in the market then and 
continued contributing all through it. You know, up until just a couple of years ago, I was contributing, and I'm planning on starting again mm-hmm. this year. Now that my business is doing well enough, that some I can, margin, yeah. yeah. And can we just talk a little bit yeah, about 100? I'm glad you putting money up. in. I think that's one of the most underappreciated things. Like, the, I'd say up until February of 2020, every investor was a great investor, and they were all very confident, right? And everyone was making money, and everyone knew all the right things to say. And I uh, was like, you know, I'm strong. I'll never take my money out. Because the idea is that you all, you're always contributing like at least once a month and you leave it in. Mm-hmm. And that you know volatility comes, but you're, you're strong badass and, you know, you have ne- nerves of steel and you'll weather it. But sure enough, um, so what happened in February, for those that don't follow financial news, is that the stock market fell by about 30, 30 plus percent. And in 2008, it was about 50 percent. Um, so if you're someone like me and you have... of your money wrapped up in the stock market, which I do, that means 95% of your money takes that ride. So we lost 30% of our life savings in February. That's terrifying. Yes. But I'd also made a plan years in advance. I knew what I was getting into, and I knew that these sort of things happen on average every 10 years or so. Um, These are natural. These are the forest fires of of the economy. Um, This one was different, and that's why I think it freaked out everybody out because it wasn't a normal economic event. It wasn't like a housing crunch. It wasn't a, uh, you know, out of control debt. It wasn't something like 2008 that we could kind of understand, but we didn't see coming. Mm -hmm. This was a virus. And so I think a lot of people freaked out that this was kind of like end of days apocalyptic stuff. And everyone was getting out of the market because they wanted to, they've already lost maybe 15% and they can't lose anymore. And they don't see the bottom of this. And that was very much a sentiment in 2008. I was not an investor then. I was young. I was in college. I had no money. But I've talked to a lot of people since, and they, they said, you've got to understand, man, when you're living this, and every day you get on, listen to the news and, and all these talking heads and you know, people who are uh, professionals who do this for a living say there's no end in sight, and this is different. This time is not like anything we've seen. This is going to be like the Great Depression. Um, when you see people lining up at the bank to take out cash, which happened in February, yeah, um, that's very scary. And you don't want to lose any more than you've already lost, so you get out. Unfortunately, by the time you decide to get back in, it's usually kind of late. Yeah. Like we've been raging along for months. Like right now, oddly enough, with everything in the world going on, we're almost back to our February highs. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to believe, <clears throat> even for me. Do, you know, I had a guy ask me a month ago, was like, is this a time to invest? Because it kind of seems like everything's kind of back up, but the economy doesn't feel good. And I'm like, man, yes, it is. Because the best time to invest was sometime in the past. The second best time is now because we yeah. never know. And I don't care who tells you what, if they say they know where the market's heading, they're full of shit and you should run. If you've got an investor that says, I know this is, or if you've got like a financial advisor or something that says this fund is going to be a winner, run. If you've got anyone that has any sort of idea of what's going to be better in the future when it comes to the stock market, run. But in general, as people are apt to say, the stock market always goes up. Um, and that's a long-term trend. We know in the short term, it will not always go up. We saw it f- tumble fantastically, like in a rate we've never seen before from February to late March. But we know that this too shall pass and one day we'll be sitting much higher than we were in February and that will all be a distant memory. Um, you know, you there are people who in maybe March of 2009 thought this would never end. And that was the bottom of the market after the 2008 crash. And then for 11 years, it climbed and climbed and climbed and climbed 
and we were due for a crash and hell one came and so that's just the game you play and you have to know that these sort of things happen and yeah it was hard to watch and know that your your life savings is tumbling by in some cases 10 percent a day yeah um that's what happened um but you also made a plan and the worst thing you can do is change the plan in a time of crisis and that's whether that's your money or your um or anything i mean you made a plan for a crisis and you stick with it and so that's one thing i talk to people a lot about um, you know, I'm not a financial advisor. I don't charge for my services and I certainly don't take on any legal obligation for them. But one thing I tell people is you have to understand the psychology of what you're getting into. This will make you wealthy. I guarantee you it. It may not be tomorrow. It may be 20 years from now, but you will have a lot more money than you did today, but you're going to have to ride some waves and that's just the game. And that's why the stock market gets a bad rap because when it bottoms out, people freak out and they run to yeah. cash, they run to gold, whatever. And by the time they're like, shit, you know, things are going well, what they're in, everyone thinks they can buy high or sell high, buy low. What happens is the opposite. They sell at the bottom because they're freaked out and then buy somewhere towards the top when things are looking good again. And they repeat that cycle and they don't make any money in the stock market and they, you know, wax poetic about how bad it is. Um, yep. But if you understand that psychology and you write it out, um, yeah, I see it, it will work. I mean, to keep drawing the parallel, I see it in training all the time (laughs) you know if if somebody has a few sessions where their you know their weights on their hangboard had to drop if you quit there you have a you have a bad story about training like training doesn't work it made me worse you know too and i don't even do it for a living so i'm sure you've heard of many more yeah yeah and that's just not the case if you take this much longer approach and you you take this bird's eye view of it and spend years doing it you will improve you know almost there's almost no no way to not improve if you're doing it intelligently yeah and there's a funny and just keeping stock in it there's a funny study. I don't even know if it's a real study, but it makes total sense. It's kind of always, it's like a little bit of an urban myth, but there may be, there's probably some truth to it. They uh, did a study of who kind of beat the market or kind of did the best over a 30-year time frame, and the people who did the best were those that had either died or had forgotten they had accounts mm. or didn't mm-hmm. know they had accounts. Maybe they yeah. were um, inherited mm. and they just sat. So the fact that they didn't know about it, they did incredibly well. But the people who were always checking, who are always reading trying about finance. Exactly. <clears throat> trying to see like, well, you know, I think the market's going to be going this way, so I'm going to start doing this, or mm-hmm. I'm going to sell this and buy this, and trying to actively manage. Those people almost always underperform just the market as a whole. So my philosophy is I just buy these index funds that that mimic the market as a whole, and I am completely satisfied with being average. And I'm, average, I'm glad you said that yeah. because I most of my money is in index funds uh-huh. and I I tend to take the approach of I don't even want to look at it. <laughs> Just let it let it do what it's going to do and over the course of time it'll end up on the positive. Now, I will say when we were kind of in this like wealth building mode, we would check once a month. Right. But we made it manual. There are apps where you can just check every five minutes if you want on your phone. You can see your whole life savings there. And I it's really, probably addicting to do that. And that's why I don't recommend it. 
um, people like it because it's so easy, but I'm like, I kind of am glad I don't have access. I have to actually go into an Excel spreadsheet and manually add up, you know, this account and this account and this account, sum them. And we would do that once a month because at that time, most of the time it was growing. I mean, from 2000, uh, last five years, things were largely good and we were pumping more money into it every month. So it was a motivating kind of system to do that once a month because we'd be like, hey, we, we grew by X percent month over month. That's very tangible. Now we're excited. But once I got to the point where I left my job, I'm like, honey, we're going to cut that way back. We're gonna, let's, yeah. let's check that every <clears throat> few months maybe. Some mm-hmm. people do it like once or tw- once a year, and that's it. Mm-hmm. And just kind of check in because there is that psychology of like, you know, when you're constantly checking in. I mean, hell, if you check the news five times a day, I guarantee you're more stressed than if you miss it for Absolutely. three days. Absolutely. And I want to be—I want to be, I wanna be a, an informed citizen, but there is a absolutely a point of diminishing returns because your brain starts to go in different places when you're a little too informed. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And you know, again, with training, it's—you know—it's really fun to see the gains, and then you get really invested in those gains, yeah. and you're looking constantly, and then it's really easy to tumble off that hill if you see a session or two where those gains don't happen. Yep. Um, 100% agreed. But those are just, those are just part of it. You're, you're going to encounter that stuff. And, and you're right. I hadn't really thought of it, but you know, I do look at my statements more in depth when there's a, when I know it's positive. Right. When I, when I know the market's going up, when I know that trend is there, I'll pay more attention to the statement and, you know, a few months ago, a statement comes in the mail, and I'm like, I don't even want to open this. <laughs> you're you're <laughs> I don't good to look. I didn't. So yeah, I, we intentionally skipped the month of March. Yeah, it was March because I knew how bad it would be. That was like the bottom of the market. We usually do it on the 15th of every month, and the, mo- the market bottomed out on March 23rd, I believe. And I knew it was going to be bad, and I was like, let's just skip this month. Like, I don't even want to know. Like, yeah. it's just best to not know because there's a lot of actually studies into this that the uh, enjoyment of seeing your money grow is not nearly as powerful as the crippling fear of seeing it oh, sure. float away. Um, yeah. that, and that is far more motivating <laughs> for people to take adverse action than to watch everything. And that's why I say everyone was a great investor until February because it was yep. easy to be like, oh, I'm making money and I've got, I know, I know so much about investing, but <laughs> I can't tell you how I many those people who three months earlier were, were so confident in their methods you know, on social media talking about, well, I'm getting out, you know, you guys are crazy to stay in this. This is nuts. Right. And here we are. We're almost back to the top. And will right. it fall again? One day. Absolutely. Yeah, sure will. It will. I, I love this phrase that you used that the best time to invest is now and the second, or the best time to invest is in the past. Sometime and, in the past. Yeah. And the second best time is now. Yeah. And I don't know if that phrase, if you made that phrase up no, or if I you got it somewhere, but I I'm going to credit it to yeah. you regardless. Um, <laughs> so, so generous from here on out, that's your phrase. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's totally true about training too. I hear people all the time concerned about, well, I don't want to start training now. You know, I'm, I'm going to wait until this moment. Yeah. And I'm like, what if we just swap the word training for improvement? Yep. Like, do you want to start improving now? Do you want to start building better habits now? Yeah, yeah. Or, you know, training doesn't have to be this, super micromanaged, you know, add a half pound to your hang every yep. session kind of a thing. There's a lot more to it than just that. Yeah. So, you know, taking that jump into investing, even if it's very basic, let's just put some money into this index fund. 50, mu- and, 50 bucks. Yep. Just. And get started that way. I think it's 
that's how I got started because I had important. all those fears that everyone else has that's new to this that I hear all the time in emails like I don't know man this seems a little and I had those same fears I knew I should be doing it I heard all these good things that says you should be doing it so I was like okay I've got like 500 bucks I'm willing to put towards this and uh, I just kind of sat there and and then it took years later until I kind of discovered this movement where people were like, no, no, you don't just do this with a little bit of money. You go all in. Yeah. And uh, you just have to know. But that, that, that the psychology piece, again, like when you go all in, I mean, the chips are on the table and you're, you're riding this thing for the long term. And we just have to believe that everything that's happened, you know, in the last hundred plus years of stock market behavior will continue to the to the future. And if you don't believe that, then we're all in big trouble. It doesn't matter if you're an investor or not, because if the economy doesn't improve, we have bigger apocalyptic problems. That, <laughs> yeah. I mean, how could you be <clears throat> any worse off than anyone else? I mean, mm -hmm. if the economy does not continue to improve, then, um, you know, you, you know, you, you can hate big business. You can, you can dislike those sort of things, but I think we, we lose track of how much, how easy our lives are because we do have a constantly improving economy and how lucky we are for that. And, you know, I struggle with that a little bit too, because, you know, by investing in the economy as a whole, I, I do buy small pieces, not intentionally, but just in these index funds, you buy pieces of businesses that don't always have the greatest track records. Um, but you have to kind of look at this as, and there, there are ways of getting around that. There actually are index funds that are uh, like have these sustainable labels. They don't maybe buy into kind of crappy companies that people don't like. There are options. Right. Sure. Um, so you have to kind of just weigh that and say, well, you know, how much of my life is really kind of cushy because I live in a place where the economy rages on every year. Yeah. I, I think we kind of forget that sometimes, um, you know, how, how good we really have it compared to a lot of places in the world where that's not the case. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, you, sh you all out there should definitely listen to the nugget if you want to know more and go a little more in depth mm -hmm. on, you know, the investing or what kind of money it is we spend on those big three things, housing, uh, transportation and food and things like that. Um, we don't really do lightning rounds here <laughs> on the, the Power Company podcast, Ding -ding. But, we're, but we're sort of going to do, we're going to take a little break and then we're going to do something akin to a lightning round. Cool. All right, break. What's up, everybody? Chris here. I'm not going to take up too much of your time, but I do want to let you know about my new book, The Hard Truth, Simple Ways to Become a Better Climber. It's a collection of 26 essays, no nonsense, meant to shine a light on those qualities that limit us the most as climbers, the qualities that are hard to measure, but simple to manage. Simple, that is, when they're backed with intention. The book was illustrated by my good friend, Brendan Leonard from semirad.com, who read every essay and put one of his amazing in-your-face charts along with each one. The Hard Truth will be widely available on May 14th, 514. No, that's not a coincidence. However, you can get your copy two to four weeks early by going to powercompanyclimbing.com, click on the shop tab, The Hard Truth, check out all the pre-order bonus items that we have, and get your order in. Until then, thanks for your support, and back to the show. All right, we have returned. So in, you know, in the, the training world, we often, um, we build a lot of drills to help people learn how to, how to climb better. Mm -hmm. um, and we also hear a lot of rules that we don't necessarily agree with. 
things like keep your hips close to the wall mm-hmm. and you know climb precise all the time mm-hmm. and and I think there's a lot of value in learning when to keep your hips away from the wall when to not worry so much about precision and you know just if you watch Adam Alder climb he's the maybe the best example in the world of this where he doesn't look precise at all <laughs> a lot of the time he just slops his foot <laughs> wherever you know and I'm like oh what happened to those like laser toe point yep. you know drills that I had to do when I started yep. climbing Adam Alder doesn't do it but then when he needs to he can focus in on that thing yep. but he's got all the skills right. So we do a lot of contrasts when we're building drills. You know, maybe one of our most famous are the sloth monkey drills where you climb once like a sloth, really slow, controlled movement, you know, and then you climb it like a monkey where you're trying to use your momentum and it's a little faster and a little more out of control. There's more chaos to deal with. And and by learning both of those skills, you become a more complete, better mm-hmm. climber. And it occurred to me, preparing for this, that there are a lot of contrasting ideas when it comes to money. Mm-hmm. And it isn't necessarily true that one is better than the other. They just fit different situations. And maybe understanding both is good for you. Yeah. So what we're going to do in our like slow lightning round is <laughs> I'll give you a contrast that, that I think also works for the training world. And let's just riff on that a little bit. Sound good? Yeah. All right. Let's start with um, effort versus effortless. (laughs) And the way I see this happen in training is like we, we watch pro climbers and we think, oh, that looks so easy. I want, I want it to look like that, you know? And then we, we end up in this place where we're never giving full effort because we always want it to look easy and it, right. it doesn't look oh, good so if we're giving a big effort. Got my weak spot. And, and I mean, mine too. That's yeah. something I've spent a lot of time working on Want to now. look in control. Yeah. And, and I think it's important to be able to switch into that gear where you are giving a huge effort and it shows and, you know, you might still fall off but accessing that level of effort versus, oh, I always want it to look smooth and easy and effortless. Mm-hmm. I've heard you talk about finance in the same way, that yeah. effort is hugely important in yeah. it. What do you mean there? Because oftentimes it looks really easy, like, oh, well, these people just have it dialed. They're money people or whatever, right. number people. They're investing geniuses or whatever. Yeah. Um, well, one that comes to mind, just as you were talking, there's actually many, but I think um, in my case, I, I, I hate that it's my story, but it is that I had a good income and therefore that's why I must be able to retire early. Um, mm-hmm. And that only people who have good incomes can do this. For one, that's patently false. I could give you, I could send you many examples of teachers on entry level teacher salaries who became financially independent. Um, so I think there's a little bit of that saying, well, okay, because you had this big income, I don't have that. And so therefore, this doesn't apply to me. I'm going to move on. Um, I've had a lot of people tell me that, well, you know, I only make this much money, so it's really hard to save. So there's there's a couple of limiting beliefs there. There's A, that you can't save more on any income. I do think there's a point of diminishing returns on that. I don't think people should live like paupers and just, you know, bare bones kind of spending. But I think there's a, a lot that people don't do to increase their income. Um, if you're in, if you're in a kind of traditional job, I mean, there's so much you can do, um, whether that's taking on additional responsibilities, 
Um, and even outside of your work hours, like like we talked about kind of moonlighting a passion, like a lot of those things will side pay. Hustle. Yeah, the side hustle. I hate yeah. the term, but it's... Um, <laughs> From the hip hop world, yeah, that's, oh, totally. that's the one I use. Yeah, and well, they, they use it in the personal finance world too. It just sound, sounds so dirty, doesn't it? Um, but yeah, I mean, like a lot of things people can do on the side, it may not be enough to, to make a livable income immediately, but if you can add income, all of a sudden that that you didn't need to survive on before and you just keep your spending the same it was, all of a sudden that's something you can now leverage. Um, you know, and, and again, getting back to the kind of the passion projects, that sort of thing, I think when it's, when you see someone, maybe even like yourself, who's got like from the outside looking in, I want to say it's a successful business, but you may not, you know, see Chris Hampton as somebody who actually put in a hell of a lot of work in the background to get this where it is. And probably still to this day works maybe a lot more than a 40 hour work week. Right. And has no real weekends and has no real Mm -hmm. off nights that that this is a a business that has to be run all the time. So I think people need to realize that a, you know, what can you do to change your situation? If you're into this kind of, if you want to improve your finances, but B, if you want to get in more meaningful work, uh, recognize how much that's going to take and the benefits that come from that and being a, a master of what you do and that being, uh, like Steve Martin said, so good they, they can't ignore you. Yeah, um, I love that. Yeah, and it? I mean, it's like the greatest simple quote. I love it. Um, if, if you're so good at something, then then you won't be ignored <clears throat> and, and someone will pay for your services. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that one leads me right into our next uh, lightning prompt here. Quality versus quantity. I see... A lot of people think that I just do more or I see people fall into the trap of I have to make this super high quality. I never have to do more. Mm -hmm. And I think there's real value to both sides of it. And focusing on just one of those things in the long term may not work for you. You know, you might you might have the absolute best process on the planet because you've spent so many quality sessions mm-hmm. learning that process. But then you go out and eight tries in, you're too tired to finish the boulder. Right. Because you've you've not spent any time with quantity. Um and like you were just saying be good enough that they can't ignore you, you know. That's a quality thing, but then there's also quantity of hours of time spent of trying and making mistakes. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to me a little bit about quality versus quantity in the hmm. money world. Yeah, maybe this isn't where you think I would go with it, but I, yeah, again, getting back to my kind of story from several years ago when we went all in on this and we got very uh, overly quantitative about things. And we were all about maximizing. And I think this is a very common story that you you get into this and whether whether it's this in terms of finances or get into this in terms of climbing and you get overzealous and you try and go all in at once and, uh, you know, shoot for the moon instead of recognizing the long game. Um, and we were like, okay, we're going to save every single dollar and we're going to, you know, take the joy out of life sometimes um, and maybe mm-hmm. a lot of times mm-hmm. in pursuit of this because once we get there, life will be good. Yeah. And, and that you, you kind of forget that, you know, it's that concept of wherever you go, here you are kind of thing. It's like, you're still the same person. And I will attest 100% that my life isn't that different now that I don't have to work. There are things about it I absolutely love and I'd never go back to it, um, to my traditional job in the past. But a lot of things about you don't change. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, I thought I'd have all the time in the world to do all this stuff. I'm going to go and volunteer my time and all these sort of things. Like if you didn't want to volunteer before, you're still not going to want to volunteer. You know, you're still going to find excuses to fill your time other ways. Um, and I hear this a lot. And so I guess in terms of quality over quantity, like we kind of got too obsessed in, instead of recognizing that there is a journey and in, in, in a lot of good things worth pursuing in life. Um, and that, yeah, you can hurry things along, but it doesn't change the outcome. Um, you may get there sooner, but then you also might be like, okay, well, actually, I haven't really built a life that I'm happy with. Um, so when we slowed that down, I think, and, and kind of built some processes to enjoying life now, I think when, that's when we started making it more quality and kind of took the quantitative aspects out of it and said, yeah. all right, let's just spend a little <laughs> bit more money. I mean, this is actually, there are things worth spending money on. Spending money is not terrible. Mm-hmm. And I think we convinced ourselves that anything other than the essentials was wasteful. Um, yeah. And I, you know, I think there's such value in making mistakes or going too far down one road and realizing you have to back up. I'm glad we did it. So yeah, learning all those quantitative ways and understanding what happens when you go that direction just informs the path that you take next. Right. Like cutting down the tree might've really sucked. But yeah. you're glad you did it. And yeah. now you know you know what it's all about. Yeah, yeah, I was I was positively giddy when it fell where I thought it was going to. <laughs> <laughs> but I was terrified up until that moment. Yeah, and we're glad we did it because, you know, talking about the psychology and market falling, like if there was another big calamitous event and we really did have to cut our spending. Oh, to calamitous, live, I like that. Yeah, word. to live within our, you know, we won't get in the investing. You, know, you have to live within a, you can only withdraw a percentage of your net worth every year to make this sustainable, to make it last because you need that market growth every year. Um, for the rest of your life. But if the market really did fall and we needed to cut back, we know we can do that and still live a pretty good life because we did it several right, years ago. Right. And it wasn't that bad, you know, but it was also unnecessary. And mm-hmm. so maybe cutting the tree was unnecessary. You saved a few bucks, but you're like, okay, I have that knowledge. I can do that again. I'll probably do it better than the last time, but I'll happily pay for it yep. as long as I can. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, that was good. Um, how about romanticizing versus practicality. I think as a as a society in general, we have all these romantic ideas about things and yeah. they've they've been exacerbated via media or whatever mm-hmm. and you know, maybe in in training one of those is this like and I've said it. I mean, I've I've actually made the statement that the best way to get better at climbing is to climb. Mm -hmm. And I still agree with that statement. But if we romanticize it and it becomes all about just going out and climbing more and doing anything, doing only the things that inspire you, you know, there's also a lot of practicality to, oh, I need to buckle down and focus on this one thing that Mm -hmm. I'm really bad at. It may not inspire me. It's not this big romantic idea but it's going to make me a much better climber if I put that time into this thing that might feel like drudgery a little bit. Right. So. 100%. Uh, I mean, I think you talk about romanticizing. So the early, early retirement has got to be one of the most romanticized things there is. Yeah. To think of not having to work again sounds so incredibly intoxicating and I fell for it just like anyone else. Um, but the downside of it is I know people who have achieved early retirement who are very depressed. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are people who have achieved traditional retirement that are very depressed. And a lot of the reasons are similar. It's because um, 
maybe there's no structure to your life. There's no meaning. There's nothing that gets you up out of bed other than just, uh, you know, because the, the zest of being able to travel and see the world, like that's going to wear off. Um, just like we talked about earlier, like just climbing all the time would probably wear off. It'll yep. be great for a while. Um, otherwise, you've got to start building meaning. And so I worried about that a lot. Um, I really did. I gave it a lot of thought on what life would look like if I didn't have accountability. As much as you hate accountability to a boss or having projects, there actually is a lot of meaning in your life that we don't take into account on um, you know, having this thing to overcome that's difficult, getting it done, even though you might have had to grit your teeth through it and you hated it, but you turn in a project or you give a presentation and people are like, you know, hell yeah, man, good job. That was great. And you're like, God, I hate that project, but they liked what I did with it and um, I feel good for that. And you get a boost. And all of a sudden, if you go and retire early and don't put yourself in those situations where you have to do difficult things a lot, your life starts to lose meaning. Um, there's just not as much worth waking up for anymore. And mm-hmm. I, I do recognize that climbing is always going to be one of those things that we're pretty good about. A lot of us, anyway, are finding like difficult projects or something like that that we have to overcome. But I think we all want something more meaningful than just this individual pursuit. Yep. Because climbing is very individual. I mean, yeah, there's team efforts on a big wall or something, you know, you can fist pound your buddy, but I wanted something. Um, so that, that's why to me, it still seems really anal, but every day I still kind of like build a schedule around my day. And I even like forced you to give me a time to come down yep. here because I need that. Mm-hmm. I need to know, okay, like on Sunday I'm doing this at 10 o'clock. Um, that so far, I mean, I'm only a few months in, so I might be a sobbing mess in a year from now and be depressed too, <laughs> like other people. But so far, I feel like that's mm. been key is that do these silly little anal things that people kind of scoff at and say, why, why don't you just go have fun? You know, you're, you're really retired. You earned it. Like, because I want to make this sustainable. And I also want to have habits that I can build on later if I do want to go back to working in a more traditional way and building a business because I've got these kind of habits that I get up and Mm -hmm. I do this sort of thing and I have a routine and I drink my coffee and I work, you know, like I still, I'm in a camper in the middle of the woods, but I still get up and I work every day. I'm doing work I want to do, so it's easy, but it's, it's not just like sitting out on the, on the chair and watching this, you know, sun go by for four hours. I just, yep. so I think it's super easy and I see this all the time that people are like, oh, early retirement, so dreamy. It also gets a lot of ire. Actually, a lot of people are like, this movement's super shit. People in their 30s should not be retiring early because they're going to be a bunch of miserable slobs. And it's 100% right. true. You could go that route and people do. And then they're sad for it. But um, there's a way to do both. I think there's a way to do both. And, you know, check back in with me in five years. But I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a way to do both. And people have pulled it off and they're usually the ones who are, now kind of building some platform, whether it pays or isn't, but it's something they have to be accountable for. And that's why I wanted this project to force me. And then sometimes my wife's like, why, why, why you like give yourself so much stress? Like now we got to drive in town Sunday to get this stupid blog post ready. Like it doesn't matter. Just like skip a week. I'm like, no, I have to. Yeah. I just have to. It's just me. Yep. I have to have this thing that Monday morning goes out and I will go, I'll walk up a mountain to get a segment, signal, cell signal to get this thing going because it just, I don't know. I think it's really good to have structure. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. Well, it's just for the record, I didn't give you any of these before we started, <laughs> but you're leading me right into the next one really easily. So next novelty versus habit. Yeah. I think people like to fall into one place or the other. I'm this free spirit or I have this really structured habitual yeah. routine. And when it comes to training, 
there are people on both sides of the fence where I have a rigid training schedule right. or I just do what feels good and I follow the wind, you know. And I was just talking to Carrie Scott uh, that works with tension climbing and mm-hmm. is just a, a brilliant all-around person. And she was here sessioning and we were talking about warm-ups. Um, I kind of go through the same warm-up cycle in the gym every single session but i do throw in some novel moments like you know i don't keep the the routine exactly the same i'll do problems in different order or occasionally i'll try adding in a new problem or i'll do a problem a different way you know i'll try to climb it in a different style or i appreciate having those little bits of novelty even though it seems like the habit sets me up better for success it can also lead me to say oh this session's gonna suck because i don't feel as good on this warm-up as i did three sessions ago when i had a really good session so that in turn tells me oh my session's gonna suck today and then i you know then that happens because that's the way i'm thinking so i throw these novel ideas in to keep my brain fresh to keep my you know, my psych fresh. And, and I do that throughout all of my climbing, not just my warm-ups. Yep. So I think novelty is a really powerful thing, but so is habit. And, and maybe I'm guilty of talking about habit too much Me too. and not putting the novelty into the, you know, into play. So uh, Yeah, I, I 100% agree. From me as a climber, I think, and a lot of this personality, obviously, I, obviously this is my personality shining through in that I'm like very structured and you know, kind of type A in that way. And I'm definitely that way as a climber. And, you know, when I was working, I definitely had my days that I climbed outside or trained. And mm-hmm. it would take an act of God for me to miss those. Yeah. I didn't care how crappy I felt. Like, that was maybe a strength, but also a weakness. Um, because I wouldn't just be flexible and just say, ah, today's an off day. I'll come back tomorrow. It's like, no, Wednesday right, is right. the day. I have to hammer at it And right now. I'm going to hammer at this thing at risk of injury or just, you know, at risk of just being all butthurt about it and just, like, just do it anyway. And in life, you know, I, I completely agree. I think I've gotten a lot more out of just being a little more loose, which is why we're traveling now. And it actually, I had a lot of fears about this mm-hmm. because I didn't have my very controlled world around me. Um, I We didn't have an agenda where we're going to go and how long we're going to be there. And that is very much with the breeze and not me. Um but I've always also admired people who can do that, who can just be like, oh, you know, I'm going to be in Lander for a few weeks and then we'll just see. And I'm like, ah, oh, I can't. I, like, I need a date on the calendar to move. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's been really beneficial <clears throat> for me to be out here. Like I took down my home wall. I have no training space. That was like almost brought a tear to my eye. I'm like, yeah. I, I don't have this like thing. I don't, I, can, I don't even want to think about that right yeah, now. <laughs> that I, I, I had to take away that element of like backyard structure and just mm-hmm. be like, I'm just going to climb outside and we're going to follow the weather and I'm like, Oh God, this might go terribly. I might be a really bad climber and I might lose all my fitness and strength because I don't have like this thing. And so in a way it's been good. And it's also been good from like, maybe not finances, like, cause that's all automated, but in terms of the work I do talking about them to not be looking at like uh, website statistics all the time. Sure. Sure. Things like that, like metrics. Cause you know, maybe you and me both are very much metrics kind of people. We want to see numbers. We want to see statistics. And because I'm out in the middle of nowhere and I can't check this stuff compulsively, it's actually been nice. And the world keeps going around without me looking at it all the time. And 
So, I mean, a week and a half in, two weeks in, so far so good. We'll see how long it lasts, but it's it's been hard for me to kind of take that, you know, take that part of my personality and just kind of like pin it to the wall and say, chill, dude, you know, like yeah. just kind of go with the breeze for a little bit. Yeah, and also, you know, I'll say money-wise, I'm a person who very, very rarely buys anything for myself that's not this super practical habitual thing you know and my wife is the opposite she's really good at at buying things that are just going to make her happy yeah you know and and i admire that in in a lot of ways because i don't do it yeah and for me it's like i can justify it away by i can buy new holds for the wall and that's you know that's a thing that makes me happy but really it's also a practical thing that's going oh, to man, that's help my sure. training you know yep. so so that's something i would like to get better at is occasionally buying something for myself i i can do it with like food if i want you know if we're traveling Food's one and i want to go yeah. and i want to go eat really good sushi i can do, i can do that yeah. um but when i'm home it's it's harder for me so yeah and i think there's a lot mm-hmm. of person like your wife's a very outgoing personality there's like a lot of um, science in this too that typically the more extroverted personalities are spin more freely mm-hmm. they just they feel that love and like <clears throat> gifting and things like that yeah whereas the introverted bunch is like like me probably you yeah we're very practical on our spending we're mm-hmm. like you know we're, we're not out like trading the world with gifts we're not out just like oh let's go have a big time all on me you know but um so there so maybe that will resonate with some people who have struggled with money like there are some personality things that you know, it's going to take more work and you shouldn't feel bad if you're, if, if you're, if you have a personality that just loves to spend. And I've seen that, um, in my own life and people I've worked with on this stuff, it's just that compulsive behavior. And for me, um, that's why I said I never really struggle with being frugal because I've been that way my whole life because I think it is a personality thing. Um, but if you can, if you can find that sweet spot and see like me and you, maybe we need to find that kind of more loose kind of loosen up the reins a little bit and make life enjoyable and sustainable. Um, I think there's a sweet spot there for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think so too. All right. I got a few more here. All right. Uh, how about heart? And this one sort of ties into the, the first one we did, but, but I think there's some differences, um, hard work versus not working. And, and I mean that in a metaphorical sense, as well as, you know, in the literal sense, mm-hmm. and and I'd love for you to talk about it in the literal sense. Actually, since you've quit your job, you've you've moved out into the road, um, mm-hmm. and the way I see it in climbing is, you know, we we climb because we love it, and it doesn't feel like work. And I hear this sentiment from a lot of people that oh, I just don't want to, I don't want it to turn into work, you know. Right. But in reality, we go out there and we try really hard on on something, and that is hard work. Yeah. You know, you're putting hard work into this thing you love, and I can take that and and take it into the gym and and translate it into I want to work really hard in the gym so that I can go outside and not necessarily have to work as hard right. at this thing that I want to do, this specific thing out there that I want to do. Um, so I think there's value in working hard towards something and in not necessarily working hard towards something, letting, letting some things happen or reaping the benefits of prior hard work. Yeah. 
you know? So how do you feel about that when it comes to money and finance? Yeah. So, I mean, I think a lot of the, the hard work is usually up front and this beauty of finances versus climbing, climbing, you kind of keep, have to show up and keep doing hard work always. I think, um, you know, I'm going to have to speak generally cause everyone, again, getting back to the personality thing, sure. like, you know, if, if, if spending is hard for you, the hard work is going to be reining that in. And that's going to be very much against your personality. It's going to take a lot of habit changing. It's going to maybe take support of a, of a spouse, uh, that's, that's hard work and you're going to have to keep showing up on that. Um, you know, for other people, it may be facing this psychology of investing, um, that they, there's so many taboos around investing. And so it's going to be really hard to educate yourself and feel like you have a plan and to stick to that plan. That's hard work. Mm-hmm. Honestly, once you get it up and running, like I said, there's so many automations. These, these companies make it easy, um, to invest your money there. What's hard is, is sticking to that plan when things are falling apart. Right. Right. Um, that's hard work. Even though you're not doing anything, it just doing nothing is hard in that situation. Mm-hmm. Like just just letting the world kind of like blow by you and just take taking the strong wind right to the face. It, it, that's the hard work on that stuff. And, and hard work for you. It may not be as hard for someone else. The right. hard work for them might be setting up the automations right. and just allowing it to be automated. You know, yeah, and, and, and you know, I see that too. People were like, okay, tell me exactly where to go and what to buy. And I'm like, I'm happy to help with some degree of that, but it's like, also, it'd probably behoove you to do some research, yeah, before yep. you just put your life savings into what I said to do, yeah, you know, where I said to do it. You know, maybe read a book, you know, maybe read a few other blogs, you know, like I, I don't mind helping people, but I also. I want you to know that, you know, this is still serious business. Like, this is your life savings. Yeah. Like, it might not hurt to spend a day or two. Like, I stay, this stuff's easy, and it is easy. doesn't mean I haven't spent tens, hundreds of hours reading about it just to make sure, mm-hmm. I, especially on the early retirement plan. Like, I'm quitting my job. I better make for damn sure I know these systems work and that this uh, system of how much I can withdraw each year works and that the system of how much my money will grow and how many, like, multiples of my yearly spending I really need and like what's the historical precedent for this sort of economic event like I spent a lot of time studying that stuff and because I did when those bad times come like in February I can be like well you know I studied like hell 2008 I know exactly what that market crash looked like I knew how long it took I kind of can envision the mentality of people one month in five months in one year in what they would be thinking and because I studied those charts and read the headlines, and I wrote a post about this to kind of remind people of this back in March, like, remember in February or in 2008 how bad things looked and then how good they got? We're yep. living that now. Yep. And so I think, yeah, it's one thing if, you know, Chad can tell you what index fund to buy and where to put it. It's a whole different thing entirely if you haven't put in that hard work and all of a sudden things begin to tumble and you don't have a, a mental precedent for this. So. Yep. It's easy to get it up and running. It's harder to keep it running. Mm. So. Yep, I like. Uh, two more. And these are these are a little bit specific to you and I. Um, first one is the security of a home versus living on the road. Yeah. Um, you're on your first, like, got rid of the home, headed out on the road, and... You're you're (laughs) learning that, figuring it out. Um, I learned it not long ago, just a few Uh years ago. You know, I I joked that I was 
living my 20s and my 40s. and Exactly, yeah. And got to, you know, I drove away from my house. I, I gave the house to my daughter to live in. Hmm. Uh, I drove away from it. She stood in the driveway crying, wow. you know, waving early one morning at 18 years old, 19 years old. And it just felt like this totally backwards thing, you know. Wow, I would have thought you would have done it prior to then. No, I just, yeah. I worked constantly. Yeah. I never had a trip longer than two weeks before just exactly. a few years ago. Yep. And so I've... I've experimented with it. I've, you know, ingested it, so to speak, and tried to understand what I like better, the security mm-hmm. of having a house or the freedom of living on the road. And maybe and maybe that's the contrast, the security versus freedom. Um, yeah. Are they actually opposite? Can you have both? Um, and can you find the security of a home while living on the road? Can that be a thing? Well, to be continued... Uh I, we talked about this the other day offline, like you always want what you don't have right now. Yeah. And so whenever I'm in a home and working a corporate job, nothing sounded better than to be on the road mm. in a camper and uh, climbing all the time or in Europe, you know, whatever, traveling. Um, so for yeah, for those that don't know, I mean, I just, we're in the process of selling our house right now. This was our long-term plan. Um, we punted on it with the coronavirus stuff until recently it was supposed to happen back in April. So we decided to kind of move forward that plan. Um, there are things about it. I, um, knew I would love and am loving like being out in nature. Um, you know, I lived in square in the middle of Denver. It was very Mm -hmm. urban. Even the parks were still urban parks. There was no nature. So, you know, I'm not complaining. We all know front range right there. I climbed and was in nature a lot, but it's one thing to wake up to it every morning. And I love that. Um, you know, it's another when it comes to weekends and there's ATVs and uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> weird tweakers. Um, you know, so it's, it's di- you know, we live in a 12-foot camper now that I bought in February. It's not a house. We had a three-bedroom, two-bathroom house. Um, Is it I, home yet? In a way, yes, but there's no way I would see us doing this for more than a year at the most. And I'll mm-hmm. already tell you, we just booked a month-long Airbnb in Leavenworth because we were like, we need, and we always intended to mix this up. Sure. Um, there are people out there I admire who do this year round, multiple years. They don't ever stay or very rarely stay in a hotel or an Airbnb. Mm-hmm. I always knew, especially for my wife, she's less into this stuff than me. She's not even a climber. So God bless her. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Because she's, she's actually been belaying me and stuff. I'm mostly bouldering, so it's not that bad. But um, so again, getting back to the structure thing, like I'm, I'm, it, it's still hard to um, to do what I want to do, especially because, you know, for you guys familiar with Lander, outside of the city, there if we call it a city, this town, yeah, town. Um, there's not great cell reception. It's hard to do work. And my wife's actually still working her job. Um, she cut her hours down to 30 hours, but that's hard. I mean, she's like literally sitting in this camper, you know, in the sun or out in the field trying to get better reception, moving around her little satellite thing. I, you know, I can't impress upon people who've never done this that it's not all like, you know, milk and honey. There are sacrifices and comfort. And so we already do yearn for like a house, but I'd like to balance it. So I think we'll do this for a better part of a year. We're actually, the whole point of this trip is to find somewhere where we can relocate. Mm. And we had a lot of towns we wanted to consider. So we're kind of spending time in all cool. those places with the intention that we will not do this forever. Cause I, right. I could do it longer than her, but even me, I know I like having a home base. And so the ideal for us 
is because we've reached this position of financial strength and that we don't need traditional jobs. And my wife is still working by choice. Um, she doesn't need to, but she likes having that structure. We're hoping that we can have a base that's pretty nice year round, but enables us to do this for maybe a month at a time. Something more right. sustainable. We can kind of be like, okay, it's the depth of winter, the heat of summer. Let's go to Squamish or let's go to, mm-hmm. I don't know, St. George or Waco or something like, and enjoy where we live most of the time. Maybe get a good, fairly reasonable year round spot, but then have that flexibility to kind of, you know, do this in little allotments, maybe up to three to six months a year, but not all in one go. Yeah. So I think that is a kind of a happy sweet spot because for me per- personal, I just I, I I didn't get this as a kid just like you. I did all the right things. I went school 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 work work work, and I always resented that I didn't have that period of like youthful travel and exploration. Mm-hmm. And so I knew I needed to do this in in reverse. And you've said it, and and I always talk about Chuck and Maggie O'Dead. I think they have a great story of, I and mean, maybe they did it in the past, but they're definitely doing it now in their forties and sixties. Um, I always thought. I think you can get more out of it then too. I mean, you're a little bit more knowledgeable of the world. Maybe you're a better climber because you didn't just like, you know, some people, they're like at 20 years old, they get into climbing, they immediately want to hit the road. And like, right. well, that's going to suck. You're going to waste the whole year climbing 510. But you can get out, you know, mm-hmm. be a little bit more knowledgeable in your sport, more knowledgeable about yourself. Um, I think this would look very different if I did it at age 21 than now. For sure. Yeah. So I, I don't know. I, I like what we're doing so far. We're two weeks in, so... I already know we're gonna we're gonna mix it up with some more comfortable accommodations, and we're happy. I had to bite the bullet big time to bite to book a month in Leavenworth. Mm-hmm. It's freaking expensive, but again, getting back to like value spending, was, oh my god, it was like way more than our mortgage driver costs. That's for sure. Yeah, but you know, it's the price you pay to. But for most of the year, we'll be living for practically for free, so it's it's right. worth it. Yeah, and yeah. you know, I I've had a really similar situation to what you to how you're planning your, your next years. Um, you know, we, we took these long trips. We found the frustrations pretty quickly. You know, I can work from anywhere, but I need the internet. It's just a necessary thing. And even in places where there, you know, you, there's internet included in your camping or, you know, in Waco, the, the rock ranch has okay internet, but when everybody's on the internet, the internet's not okay anymore. And it, it sucks to, know, to be the there way. and you know so i'm learning things like figuring out how to use hotspots unlimited and you know traveling to australia the internet there sucks in general yep. <laughs> you know even in the <laughs> airbnbs true. a lot of places and, out of the us we take for granted how good the wi-fi is here yeah and and then you end up with this frustration like yep. this is this is the level of productivity i'm used to now i can't be that productive now i'm frustrated now I'm not happy, you know? And so I really do love the home base with those bits of freedom. And, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of people, a lot of pro climbers, you know, Jonathan Segrist and Alex Honnold buying houses and, you know, finding home bases. It makes me feel good to see that. It puts some normalcy into the climbing life that, yeah, because, you know, and these guys can attest to it. They had lots of fun and, and obviously became fantastic climbers because they were able to mm-hmm. travel and climb a lot of different rock and a lot of different places. But, you know, getting back to sustainability, like there ain't too many people doing that 30 yep. years on, yep. you know? So I think security and freedom are are not mutually exclusive. No. And there's a sweet spot for all of us and you just have to find the one that fits you best. Yeah, and I've got, 
it's funny timing. I'm going to publish a post on this tomorrow. It's, you know, we're living in this pandemic where everyone's working from home that can. Right. Uh, it, you know, those privileged kind of white collar jobs that mm-hmm. are internet based. My wife's one of them. And I think there's going to be a bigger movement towards keeping that more permanent. Oh, yeah. Obviously, definitely. people have already seen the benefits that they, if they hadn't magically hadn't considered them before. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's going to, and I kind of put a little word of caution in there, like, well, careful what you ask for, because if you think you can just hit the road and just project to the end of days, there are challenges with this. I can tell you from just being out here with my wife and even my limited, um, you know, necessities on running this website, it's hard. And, uh, yep. j- you know, just be just be wary of what you're getting into if you think you can just head out on the road and work 40 hours. Like, you're going to put more time into it than 40 hours. Um, yep. just running around trying to find signal and that sort of thing. So it's, it's, it's something I think will be happening, but, um, it's, it's very different to wake up and just go into your office where your computer's all set up and you got a nice clean table and it's climate controlled and great mm-hmm. Wi-Fi, than to be out in a camper or a van or whatever, driving around town, trying to find LTE. Yep. yep. Totally. <laughs> totally. All right. Last one. And we've talked a little bit about this. Um, but I kind of want to close with it because I think it's this overarching idea of, you know, how you deal with your finances, especially over the long term. And, and it's the overarching idea that I try to teach in, in most of our workshops, whether that's to climbers or to coaches or, you know, whatever. And that's success versus mastery. Mm, and yeah. climbing is this really success-based sport you know we we do the move we we send the boulder we win the comp you know we're we're constantly looking for successes and building this string of successes and that's what gives us worth gives us value and and ultimately i think mastery is this it's almost a pursuit of mistakes you know it's it's a a pursuit of not succeeding and a slower pursuit. Yeah. And learning why we aren't succeeding and how that relates to how we do succeed and, you know, trying to make all the mistakes now so that we aren't making them in the future, you know, get it, getting good at recognizing when yeah. those mistakes are happening so we don't continue making them. And, and I think that's hard for people to grasp because if we get on the five twelve now, we might send it in a month, right. you know, but if I am only climbing five elevens for six months, that seems like it's not success, yeah. you know, however, then once you get on five twelve, you send it in a couple of tries and then you can send 10 of them in that month that this person is, is taking because they're so focused on success and not mastery. How do you see that play out in the, the finance world? Are mm-hmm. there traps to, looking at success that when we should be looking at mastery. Yeah. I mean, and as a climber, I can completely attest to that because my early days of climbing were all about climbing the next grade because that made you a better climber. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I mean, almost, it took almost seven or eight years for me to finally just slow down and just, you know, build a proper pyramid and actually like face the fact that I was a really crappy onsider and, Mm -hmm. and I could, climb harder grades than a lot of my friends on paper but when you put me on something i was supposed to do is like a maybe a third warm-up or something it was like take take yeah you know because i wasn't a good climber i was strong and i could get things done if i beat my head against the wall long enough but yeah but i wasn't 
I kept having to face the reality like, man, that guy doesn't, he hasn't climbed the grades I've climbed, but he's a better climber than me. Right. Like, you were skipping over yeah. mastering any of the grades. And yeah. And now that's been my focus for like two or three years of like, screw the chart, screw the 8A kind of growth projection. Like it's just, you know, focus on the fundamentals. So yeah, getting back to money. I mean, obviously the first thing that comes to mind is just on the spending side, and maybe this doesn't apply to climbers as much, but you know, the flashy stuff. The, well, uh, I think it does apply to climbers, yeah. like the new gear. The true, you know, I have to have the C four Camelot because uh, the C three right. isn't good enough anymore. Yeah, or, even though I just got one last year, you know, and like, I, or the new biggest coolest van in a lot. I mean, man, yeah. dude, vans have gotten nice. Like I remember when I first started seeing vans, even five years ago, like they were obviously lived in and they didn't look nice, and they just kind of had some mattresses. Now there's like. $2,000 fridges in them and like mm-hmm. uh, you know, there are companies I mean for coming from the front range there are huge companies that make lots of money to to take lots of money from you to build out vans like there are whole industries built around this now and so maybe that's kind of the Rolex of the climbing community um, and I, you know I try not to hate on that because it can be decent economics if you can make that last unfortunately a lot of people are not going to live in a van for 10 years um, for all the reasons we just discussed, mm-hmm. uh, winter comes around, shit's not that fun when all your friends are back in their house, um, yep. you know, and all of a sudden this very expensive thing is mostly parked outside your other house. Um, so I think there's a little bit of that. Um, so there's this this showing of like, I've made it, I got something nice, like I've got the coolest gear, I've got the coolest vehicle, whatever, and I go on all these trips on the weekends. But is that really free? You know, I always ask myself, like, what's really freedom? Like, is freedom to be able to go on a weekend trip or is it to be able to choose whatever the hell you want to do with the rest of your life? Um, so that was always my existential kind of question is like, you know, I could have this thing now and I could look cool. I could buy, maybe a, I could have bought a nicer house or I could have upgraded from the car I still had from high school. Um, but I was like, that comes at a cost. Everything, obviously, just beyond just the money you spend on it. There is the cost of like, you know, okay, I buy a new car, it costs $30,000. But what else could I have done with that $30,000 that could be more meaningful, you know, if I put it towards something else later, Mm -hmm. like the compounding effects of that money. Um, So, you know, I guess that's the first thing that comes to mind. And once you have the compounding effects of that money, you can buy the car that makes more sense to have and is going to be this better thing for you than that flashy car you wanted in the beginning. And I just did that. I just bought a new car and it hurt me deeply. And and a camper. (laughs) But we weighed the economic options. We knew we were going to travel for probably a year. And I was like, well, we could just keep our crappy Subaru and we could stay in Airbnbs. And I quickly realized that was going to cost us as much or more as a new car. And I was like, well, economically, I could maybe not make out this year, but then I'll have this thing that I can use for many years on. Mm -hmm. And so it starts to make economic sense. But I think we just have to kind of give it that 48 hours of thought. And people yeah. tell you about this all the time. Like, you know, um, I forget who originally talked about this. Like, put something in your Amazon account, put it on your wish list, come back to it in two days, see if yep. you still want it. Yeah, um, I do this all the time. Yeah. And, and most so, of the time I delete it out of there. <laughs> believe me, especially running this website, I had a lot of misgivings about buying a new car. I was like, oh my God, like I'm totally the person I've said not to be. But there are times when it makes sense. Mm-hmm. And I, I went through the motions. I had like a couple of literally sleepless nights. Like, what am I doing? This is so much money. But, um, you know, we made a decision and actually we're really happy with that now. And we'll, we'll see how it goes. So I'm not saying like that uh, buying stuff is wrong. It's like, are you doing it for the right reasons? Are you doing it to, um, it, does it make good economic sense? Does it make you happy? Or is it, um, 
you know, there's FOMO spending, like kind of keeping up with the Joneses kind of stuff. And that climbs, applies to climbers just as much as it does the suburb and the white picket fences, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. And sometimes, you know, I think embracing the chase success versus chase mastery is totally okay. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's also a part of mastery is built, not only building up the mistakes, but building up the successes too. Yeah. And, you know, if I'm, if I'm nearing my, you know, available time, available energy, and I really want to climb this grade, then I'm going to start chasing that grade, you know, but, but I've spent all this time building up to it, chasing mastery. And, and now I can afford to chase success for a few minutes, Yeah, you know, and I think that's totally okay. I think that's kind of how I view it. It's like, okay, we're good 99% of the time. We can go big every once in a while to add some value. Um, and so we're not such sticklers getting to that, back to that kind of theme here of balance and, and sweet spots. Um, yep. yeah, good point. Well, man, this was awesome. Yes, I, was I appreciate fun. you embracing the, the slow lightning round. It's and good to talk about, you don't get too many times to get a microphone stuck in your face to talk about money. So, yeah. And I just, I like <laughs> the, you know, I like that you can take something as taboo as money and, and frankly, as hard to talk about as money and break it down in terms that climbers are understanding and i think your your blog your website is a really valuable resource that people should be thank you checking out more you know we all have these dreams around climbing whatever it is whatever your dream out there is in whatever situation you want to build toward it's going to cost money in some way shape or form and why not have that handled you know i want to have my finger strength handled so that i can focus on my movement so why not have that money handled um and like you said the best time is sometime in the past but second best time is now so put in the effort you won't regret it and and to your point we talked about offline the other day i hope this kind of trickles down even for you know i understand financial independence is big but hell if you're starting a business it'd be nice to know what to charge people and people keep that stuff behind closed doors like yeah money is just something people don't want to talk about they don't want to talk about how much they charge for a training service Um, and i hope i hope people can be more comfortable just saying you know i charge this for this service you know so i don't know for whatever reason we just can't get it to be transparent but i hope in some ways there can just be more and more comfort around money and and talking about planning for your future and that shouldn't be such a bad topic yep and i think your leading is in that direction so i appreciate it man and so Thanks. Thanks Thank for you. this. You know, money can be a, a scary topic for some people. This like hard to to approach idea to even consider. Um, but it shouldn't be. It's it's a part of all of our lives, whether we like it or not. And why not embrace that? Why not normalize the conversation surrounding money and finance and you know, start preparing. I think clippingchains.com is a really great place for you to start. Um, Like I said, there are links right there in your show notes. I appreciate Chad sitting down and having this conversation with me. And I appreciate him putting the information out there in in a really relatable way. You know, to be totally frank about it, I don't like going to most money websites most let's talk about finances websites because i don't find them relatable i'm not super into the numbers um it's just not for me 
but I, I do every single time I see that Chad has a new post out, I go and I read it because I, I think he speaks to, to, to me in a really relatable way, something that I understand, I look forward to reading, and, and I look forward to putting into practice. So uh, if you fit into that same conversation, head over there, clippingchains.com, and start learning. All right, this has been a big one. We're approaching two hours here. That's crazy. I didn't even realize it until just this moment. So I'm not going to take up a bunch of your time. If you've got a home wall, check out those footholds on our website, powercompanyclimbing.com slash holds. Uh, If you're a relatively new climber looking for a training plan to get better that's not, oh, just climb more, check out our new proven plans. You can find that link in your show notes as well. And go check out that virtual climbing festival from Women Uprising Australia. You won't be sorry you did it. I promise. All right. You guys know where to find us. Powercompanyclimbing.com. You can find us on the Instagrams. You can find us on the Facebooks. There's a Facebook group there too, if I haven't mentioned that. Go check it out. And... You can search for us all day on the Twitter. We won't be there. We're outside, climbing, having conversations, meeting real people. We're not on the Twitters because we don't tweet. We scream like eagles. This time,